Our scripture readings for this morning as we prepare for God's Word begin with uh, the Old Testament reading in Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 9 through 22, and then we will read in the New Testament in Revelation uh, chapter 14, the last few verses there, 14 through 20. Um, but let's hear the Word of the Lord. Daniel 7, beginning at verse 9. Daniel has this vision uh, of the latter days. And he said, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated, his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to the one who stood by and asked him the truth of all of this. So he told me and made known to me this interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, those whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So once again, you see the great enemies of God's people and His church rising up. And yet once again, God delivers His people and brings them into the fullness of His kingdom in Christ. Let's take a look at Revelation 14, now verses 14 through 20. We've been working our way through the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 14. Uh, this is uh, the third sermon in chapter 14. Uh, and this brings us to the end of the fourth vision. Brings us to uh, the final judgment at the end. So let's hear the Word of God again. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. 
And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress wine press was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. And there ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would open our hearts and our minds by Your Spirit who dwells within us, that we might know Your truth, we might truly hear it and be doers of that truth. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the theme of the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ is that though life in this world is going to get rougher and rougher for Christians as the end draws near, the Lord has promised us that He will always be with us, that He will always hear our prayers, that He will work all things together for our good, and that in the end, He will come in great power and glory to deliver His people from their enemies, to judge the wicked for their sin, and to bring in the glorious kingdom of our God in all of its fullness. That's God's never-failing promise to you as, your child, as His child in Christ. And really, this is not just the theme of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's not just the theme of the last book of the Bible. It's really the theme of the whole Bible from beginning to end. The godly have always been persecuted. They've always been tormented. They've been killed by the ungodly. This is the life of the believer in this fallen world. But the promise of God is that this is not the way it will always be. God always delivers His people. And we see that over and over in the Scriptures. Now I want to give you an example uh, from the book of Esther. A book where the name of God is not even mentioned. And yet you see His sovereign, overruling hand in providence over and over throughout that whole story. In the book of Esther, you see Haman, the descendant, a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites, the historic enemy of God's people. Haman is intent on exterminating God's people, the Jews. And as always the case, what happens? The plans of the wicked end up coming back on their own heads. As it says in Psalm 7, verse 16, His trouble shall return upon His own head, and His violent dealings shall come down on His own crown. The wicked may look prosperous. They may look like they're going to win. And this is always hard for the righteous to, to endure, right? To see that in this life. But it never ends that way. Never. The wicked will always lose in the end. 
In fact, you may remember, Haman made this gallows 50 cubits high and he was going to hang Mordecai on it, right? But who ended up hanging on the gallows? Haman. Haman did. Now, now the main reason that I bring this up in the book of Esther is because there's this very telling communication from Mordecai to Esther after she has become the new queen and after Haman's plans to exterminate the Jews have come to light. You find it in Esther chapter 4 where Mordecai tells Esther through her uh, couriers about this wicked plan of the arch enemy Haman to destroy the Jews. And this is what he says to her, to her through, the, through the couriers in verses 13 and 14 uh, of, of chapter 4. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So, so Mordecai, he, he does not know the mind of God. He does not know how the Lord is going to save His people from the destructive powers of their great enemy. He just knows that God is going to do it one way or another. That's God's promise. He believes that. He knows that. I mean, it may come through Queen Esther or it may not. But one way or another, God is going to save His people. And He's going to defeat their enemies. And Mordecai knows this because he has faith in the promises of God. No matter what it looks like in the world around us, he knows God's promise. And that's what he hangs on to. And that's really how we should approach the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because in a sense, what we're given here are more details. Not, not enough details really to predict exactly what's going to happen and, and not even slightly close probably. But we are given more details here so that we know that it will be so. And we can rest in our God and we can rest in His great power that He will watch over us, that He will save us from all those who try to destroy us, all of our enemies. And so we can live for Him in our age, in our time, no matter how the world might unite against us, might unite against the church, might unite against our Lord Jesus Christ, because that's really what it's all about. And the reason we can do that, the reason we can rest in Him and live for Him is because the end is coming. And in the end, it will be glorious. And it will be terrible all at the same time. It will be glorious for the people of God, for the followers of the Lamb of God. Those who are made up of every tribe and tongue and nation. But it will be terrible. For those who follow the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, the harlot, Babylon, this world. For them it will be a terror and, and, and it will be wrath beyond belief. So let's consider these last few verses of chapter 14 as we look at the harvest of the redeemed and the judgment of the unredeemed. Got the same theme again this morning. We've had this for the third time now. Christ blesses the redeemed and punishes the unredeemed. Um, 
We looked at in the first five verses the blessedness of the redeemed. That was part one. And we looked at the warnings of the final judgment in verses 6 through 13. That was part two. And now for part three, we have the harvest of the final judgment with two points the harvest of the redeemed and the judgment of the unredeemed. Now, I have to point out again, as I did last time, I believe, that the events here in chapter 14, they don't follow a, a strict chronological order. In the first five verses, what we're seeing is really the kind of the beginning of the eternal bliss of the redeemed as they are with the Lord in glory. And then in verses six and seven, we see this old world is given a warning, a warning of the gospel, really, that it needs to repent of its sin because the hour of judgment is coming. Verse 8 tells us what that judgment is going to be like at the end of history. Verses 9 through 11 give us an account of those eternal consequences of the judgment of God that's coming of an everlasting hell for the wicked. But verses 12 and 13 that we looked at last time really, really kind of make up the main point. They make up the, the center of this chapter. And they give the people of God, they give you and me a, a, an exhortation, an encouragement to persevere. To persevere now in our time, in the present, as we wait for the end that is coming. And now when we come to verses 14-20 through 20 of our text this morning, we're, we're told once more that that judgment is going to come at the end of the age. And so there's kind of a repetition here within this chapter, but that's really to emphasize to us the certainty and the severity and the glory that is to come when the Savior returns in the brightness of His coming. And so more is going to be added to this final scene that, that comes at the end of the age in our text this morning. We're going to learn a little bit more than what we've learned previously. And, and we're actually going to be given more details in what follows in later chapters. But for now, let's just kind of dig into what's before us here and let's find this truth of God's Word that you and I desperately need in the day in which we live. So listen again to verse 14 as we see the picture of our Lord Jesus Christ as He comes at the end of this fourth vision. The Apostle John says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on His head a golden crown, and in His hand a sharp sickle. Now this is an obvious allusion to what I read earlier in Daniel chapter 7, particularly verse 13, uh, of one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And, and so this uh, is made clear by the, really the description of the clouds. The second coming, the, the final judgment has arrived uh, as the angel uh, made clear even at Christ's ascension when Christ left. Remember it said He was received up into a cloud and, and the angel said that He would return in the same way. And so we should understand that the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we see it here, it's, it's a sign of both redemption and of judgment. In fact, all the synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mention this idea when, when Christ speaks of His second coming, of both redemption and judgment. I'm just going to read from uh, Matthew 24, verses 29-31. Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
And He will send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So both things are there. Judgment, redemption. Coming with the clouds, though, it's a sure sign to us that this is speaking about the final judgment. And you may remember when Jesus talked to His disciples, He told them that the judgment is coming for the wicked and that the the, the redemption is coming for the righteous and it will all happen at the final harvest, at the end of the age. Now I want you to notice two things here about our faithful Savior as He comes for our rescue here to, to take us to Himself. First of all, He's described as having a golden crown on His head. He's not coming this time with the crown of thorns. He comes this time with the crown of victory. And this crown identifies our Lord Jesus as the King over all of His people. And it implies to us that we too will rule with Him. His having a crown and we being united to Him by faith, we too will have crowns. We're told that several times in the book of Revelation here. That we will wear golden crowns. But you know, the, the, the crown of Christ it signifies more than just that He's our King. It signifies that He's the King of kings. That He's the King over His enemies as well as over His people. In fact, we'll see this later on in Revelation 19, verse 12 and 13, where uh, we see Jesus coming forth on this white horse and He's going to judge and make war. Remember? His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on His head were many crowns. Not just one crown, but many crowns. Signifying that He's the King of all kings. And He had on it written a name written on that no one knew except Himself. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Signifying His great work of redemption for the sake of His people. For us. And His name is called the Word of God. And then in verse 16, uh, it says, And on His... And He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So here is the One before whom all will bow. Here is the great and mighty God, the King of heaven and earth, and He's coming. I want you to notice one more thing about this King. He not only has a crown, but He has a sharp sickle in His hand. He is prepared for the harvest because the harvest of the world has now come. The sickle is ready. The harvest is ready. And so the end comes. Let's move on here. Verses 15 and 16. Uh, We see our Lord Jesus Christ. And now it says, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to Him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. Now, though this angel commands Christ to thrust in his sickle to to harvest the world, to to bring about the final judgment, we, we should not really think that this angel has some sort of authority over our Lord and Savior. The angel is merely a messenger. He's the one who brings this great shout of command from the throne room of God. He comes from the heavenly temple and He brings this message to Christ. And when you think about it, this is kind of really keeping it in, uh, with the rest of the Scriptures. Jesus said when He walked on this earth that He did not know the time of the end that was set by His Father. 
Mark 13, verse 32 and 33. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And therefore, what does Jesus tell His disciples? What does He tell us? Because nobody knows when this is going to happen. He says, take heed. Watch and pray. For you don't know when the time is. I mean, think about Jesus saying that if He doesn't know the time, then you and I surely will not know the time when this will happen. So we need to be ready. We need to be watchful. We need to be praying. Jesus even reaffirms this in in Acts chapter 1, just before He ascends into heaven. The disciples, you remember, they're asking questions about the timetable. What's going to happen now? What's what's next on the agenda here? And what does Jesus say? Acts 1-7. And He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in His own authority. There's also some support here that the end begins with this shout. When you read uh, Paul's instruction to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, where it's describing the second coming in this same way that it's going to begin with a shout. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, the point here, though, is that Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verse 32, that no one except the Father will know the time of the end until it comes. Now, people of God, why does God command the reaping of the harvest? Why does this message come from the throne room of God, come to the Son of Man as He's coming on the clouds, our Lord Jesus Christ telling Him to thrust His sickle on the earth and reap? The reason this text says is because the harvest of the earth is ripe. The end has come. And, and this as we've seen you know, many times uh, in this, uh, it's, it's really part of the theme of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ that it, it reminds us that this world as we know it, this world as the world thinks they know it, it's all going to come to an end. That's been the message from the beginning. Right from the beginning, it was a promise that the Savior would come. The Redeemer would come and He would crush the serpent's head, right? Well, first He comes to save His people from their sins by His vicarious death upon the cross. Vicarious means that that He takes our place. He takes our sin upon Himself. He suffers for our sins. He satisfies the wrath of God that's against us. His elect, His people, His followers. What we call propitiation. He satisfies God's wrath completely. But Christ's vicarious atonement is not for everyone. It is only for those who come to Him in faith. It's only for those who confess their sins and their utter lack of righteousness and who throw themselves upon the mercy of God to them in Christ. Now, that message is to everyone, yes. And we don't know who those people are. But it is only effective for those who are the elect. And to these, and only to these, the Lord Himself comes with healing in His wings to bring in the fullness of their salvation. And that's why it's so important. That's why it's expedient for you to come to Christ. For only in Christ can you be saved from the wrath to come. Beloved, there there is a warning here. 
You know, the, the second coming of Christ, it's a, it's a message of great joy. It's a message of tremendous comfort to all those who are in Christ. But you see, to those who are not, there is no joy. There's no comfort at all. Only the, the certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. That's what it says, Hebrews 10.27. And, and this has always been the message of the Word of God. The message of the everlasting Gospel that has been preached and is being preached and will be preached throughout the world until that day that Christ comes. And when He comes, it will end. And there will be no more days of repentance. No more days of grace. It will be just like the days of Noah when the earth was filled with violence. And Noah, what what he told about Noah? He was a preacher of righteousness. For 120 years he preached as he built the ark. And only eight souls were saved. Only eight. The day is coming when the Lord will return in great power and glory to just the living and the dead. And that message of the Gospel, it has not changed. Listen to what John the Baptist said. He's the forerunner of Christ. He comes before Christ arrives upon the scene to proclaim His public ministry to the children of Israel, right? And in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7-12, through listen to what John the Baptist says in his day. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The wrath is coming. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Time is near. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's judgment coming, he says. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And He will thoroughly cleanse out His threshing floor and gather His wheat into the barn. But He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He's describing the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ there. And so it shall be, beloved. Our Lord is going to return. He will make all things right. The wicked will be punished. And the righteous will be rescued. Of that you can be sure. Now let's move on to the last verses of our text. Verses uh, 17 through 20 of chapter 14. Uh, It it seems somewhat here that this is just kind of going over the same judgment uh, uh, that we saw in verses 14 through 16. But those verses that we've already looked at really are kind of entering on the the harvest of the righteous. We could say it really... applies to the first fruits of the harvest because that's what happens when the first fruits are what are har- harvested first right 
Yes, there is a harvest and it's going to be a complete harvest. But, you know, verses 14 through 16 kind of emphasize once again that Christ is going to gather his people to himself. But in these last few verses here, verses 17 through 20, the emphasis is really on the wicked and the judgment and the punishment that they receive at the end of the age. So, so listen again to verses 17 and 18 as we see two more angels come on the scene. Um, somebody pointed out that if you, if you read through chapter 14, there's actually seven different characters that show six angels and Christ Himself showing us again the completion of uh, God's work here. Uh, the number seven. But then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. You'll notice there's another sharp sickle, right? Uh, One of the commentators says it's a vine knife, though it's actually the very same words that are used of that sharp sickle that Christ uses to harvest the earth. And I think the point is not to to make sure that we don't think this is a second harvest. To make it clear that this is the harvest, the, the final harvest, which includes the righteous as well as the wicked. It should also remind us of, of what Jesus says at the end of the parable of the dragnet in uh, Matthew 13, verses 49 and 50. He says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. But you'll, you'll notice here, there's, there's two angels, right? The first angel has the sharp sickle. He comes from the sanctuary, comes from the temple of God. Uh, and he has received orders to go forth into the world, bringing this sharp sickle of God's judgment on the wicked. He's ready. He's, he's in position. And, and the second angel, we're told, comes from the altar. And I think that's an important distinction here. The second angel cries out to the first angel to thrust in the sickle of God's judgment on the wicked. And and what we need to remember here is the altar is the symbol of the incense of the prayers of the saints. The prayers that ascend to the throne of God. The prayers that we heard, that we read back in chapter 6, where the saints of God said, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until You judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Remember those prayers? Remember they were given a white robe and and they were told to wait a little longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was complete? Well, apparently that number has been reached. And now the judgment of God goes forth in all of its just and righteous terror. And clearly, uh, the judgment of the wicked is the answer to the prayers of the saints. You, you read it in the Psalms over and over. To pray against the wicked. To pray against those who are enemies of Christ. But notice that the imagery of this judgment in the, in the last two verses of our text this morning here it actually begins in, in verse 18. You know, the, the first angel is told by the second angel, you know, to thrust in your sharp sickle, gather in the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. That's the imagery here, right? And, and, and that's exactly, of course, what the first angel does. He thrusts in the sickle of God's wrath 
into the earth. He, he gathers the wicked for their judgment. And then in verses 19 and 20, it continues, so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth, gathered the vine of the earth, threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city. And blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. The vine of the earth is a symbol of the entire multitude of the wicked on this earth. Those who worship and serve the beast. Those who follow the Lamb who speaks like a dragon. Those who refuse to follow the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. The grapes, in a sense, are individual believers. They represent those individual, the unredeemed. Uh, those whose minds and whose lives are dedicated fully to follow the dragon. And in just the same way that grapes are trampled and pressed and crushed in a wine press, so the wicked are going to be crushed and punished and destroyed everlastingly as they're thrown into the great wine press of God's wrath. Now, now this visual that we have here in this vision, without exception, it's a typical picture. It's a typical word picture, a metaphor of God's judgment in the Old Testament. This is not something new. In fact, we have this same picture in Joel chapter 3 where the judgment of God is described in the same way as it too points to the, the final judgment that's to come at the end of the age. I want you to listen to those words uh, of the prophet Joel in, in chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Don't, and don't miss, you'll, you'll see connections here, the, the reference to the sickle of God's harvest as well as the winepress of God's wrath here. Let the nations be awakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Notice these, these signs of judgment. But also notice this, the, the promises that are made to God's people as I continue reading here. Verse 15, Joel chapter 3, The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake. But the Lord will be a shelter for His people and the strength of the children of Israel. So once again, you have this language of judgment for the wicked and redemption for the righteous. The wicked really believe that they will never be brought to account. That they will never have to pay for their sins, for their wickedness. But you see, that's not true. Judgment day is coming. And it's coming soon. And what happens when you, what happens when you throw grapes into a wine press and, and you crush them? Well, the grape juice begins to flow. But you'll notice in the vision, this fourth vision that's coming to a close here, that it's blood that flows out of the wine press. And blood is a sure sign of judgment. And notice the text makes it clear that this wine press that's trampled, that flows with blood, is trampled outside the city. It's outside the city of God. It's outside of Mount Zion. It's outside of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no judgment for those who are in the city of God. 
None. Because of our Savior. It's only for those who are outside the city. And they will certainly be harvested. They will certainly be trampled. They will certainly be crushed. And they will know the fullness of God's wrath for all eternity. And this imagery of inside the city and outside the city is found later on in Revelation as well. Chapter 22. And it says in verses 14 and 15, Blessed are those who do His commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Now the picture of blood that flows is of interest as well here and it has some meaning. Uh, it's, it's like a lake of blood. In fact, we're told it's so deep that horses basically could swim in it. It's, it's up to their bridles. And, and it spreads out in all directions, a distance of 1,600 furlongs. It's about 184 miles. But the number that's important here, then, as with all the numbers in the book of Revelation, is the 1,600. That has significance as well. Because if, if you remember here, we've looked at this previously, the number of the earth, the number of creation, the universe, if you would, is the number four. And, and we even use that, right? The, the four corners of the earth. The number of completeness is the number ten. And we've seen that many times. And so 1,600 is four times four times ten times ten. Um, and so this is the number of the judgment of the wicked of this world. A, a number that signifies really uh, the thoroughness, the completion of God's judgment of the wicked. It, it tells us clearly that every sin will be punished. That every sinner will pay the wages of their sin. And when that happens, the wrath of God is complete. At least for this fourth vision. We're going to get more details that follow later. Now, people of God, we've come to the end of another vision in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And in it, once more, we see very clearly the triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ over all. The winepress of God's wrath will be filled and the grapes will be crushed. The wrath of God will fall like it's never fallen before when Christ comes in great power and glory to judge the living and the dead. The whole world will be held guilty before God. And there will be no escape for sinners. We're going to see this again later on. Revelation 19, where the Son of God comes to a world on a white horse. I've alluded to this earlier. And He's followed by the armies of heaven. And what does it say about our Lord there? Revelation 19, verses 15 and 16. Now out of His mouth goes a sharp sword that with it He should strike the nations. The Word of God. The everlasting Gospel. And He Himself will rule them with an iron, a rod of iron. He Himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And it identifies Him. And He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written. I said this before. King of kings and Lord of lords. And so what's the only hope of mankind? The only hope is now. While He sits on His throne, 
while Christ is waiting for His enemies to be made His footstool. The time is now where the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is going forth. The time is now for us to turn to Him in repentance, to worship and to serve Him before the end comes. Today, as the Scripture says, is the day of salvation. Today, you and I must serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We must kiss the Son, lest He be angry and we perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. He's coming, not only for redemption, but for judgment. As Psalm 2 continues there, blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. That's what the psalmist says. And beloved, as as those who are looking forward to that day when our Lord, when our Savior shall return and He will take us to Himself, let us prepare for that day that is surely coming. A day that will come like a thief in the night. Let, Let us watch and pray. Let us worship Him and serve Him. Let us follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I want to close with the the words of exhortation, the words of encouragement that come from the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians as he's talking to them about the coming of the Lord and and what they need to do and what you and I need to do as well. Chapter 5, verses 6-11. through Let me close with these words. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And here's the reason for, because God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other. And edify each other as you are also doing. And all God's people said, Amen.